I mean, I feel like I see it every day on my social media that a trans woman of color has been either attacked or murdered. For me, for our community, it feels like that is our current day AIDS crisis. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporter every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Brought to you by Hackensack Meridian Health. Visit our partner site, NBCNewYork.com slash HealthU, to help you on your health journey. Hackensack Meridian Health, life years ahead. It's being described as the Olympics of Pride celebrations, right here in New York City. Hello everyone, this is David Ushery, an anchor on News 4 New York at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. And for this week's debrief podcast, we're actually calling it Pridecast because we are marking what is really essentially for us a local story. The 50 year anniversary of Stonewall and all that's accompanying it. And to talk us through it is Kathy Renna, an LGBTQ activist. She also runs a firm that is front and center with all of the event planning and marketing. And she's also gonna appear in a special on NBC that we're doing, one hour special, uh, on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So Kathy, thank you for joining us on this it's podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So I, I, I wanna to talk to you about, there, there are a number of issues that we need to peel back, but um, I have a colleague here who always bristles in the newscast sometimes when we say uh, Stonewall, which launched the gay rights movement. Because that person feels actually there were things happening before that and that perhaps Stonewall gave it new life. So start there for me, kind of characterize it. For sure, me. Um, you can give that person my name because I totally agree. Okay. And it's true, I actually knew some of these pioneers who were doing work in the 50s and early to mid 60s. People like Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and the Daughters of Belitis and Mattachine, they were picketing, in fact, picketing in front of the White House in 1965 and picketing in front of the Independence Hall in Philadelphia every year. They would call it the annual reminders. We celebrated the 50th anniversary of those several years ago in Philly. So. It's true, there was a, a small and growing movement. It was more mainstream in a way, you know, because I knew Frank and, and Frank had rules. Frank said, if we're gonna pick it in front of the White House, we need to look normal. Uh, put quotes around that, mm -hmm. right? right. Um, guys gotta wear suits and ties, girls have to wear skirts. And, you know, what happened to the Stonewall was a very different thing. But what the Stonewall uprising really did was it kind of catapulted the movement. It was like, as I keep describing it, like we're, we were driving at maybe 20 or 25 miles an hour, and then somebody put their foot or their heel maybe mm -hmm. really hard down on the gas, and suddenly we're going 50, 60 miles an hour because people found out about this. They heard about it. I mean, to the point of, of your, your colleague, there are actually other incidents similar to what happened to the Stonewall, the Black Cat in LA, um, and Compton Cafeteria riots. You know, similar altercations between the police and particularly trans women, mm -hmm. trans women of color, right. uh, in those cities. But for whatever reason, which maybe it's because we're in New York, right. maybe it's because the media covered it, and maybe it's because it just caught on in a way that, you know, it went on for five or six nights. Right. Uh, it really, it lit a fire, it lit the spark, and as one of, um, one of the amazing, extraordinary people I've gotten to know from the Gay Liberation Front, Carla Jay, has described it. It's the spark that lit the torch that became the Gay Liberation Front, which then planned the first Prides in 1970. We'll celebrate the 50th anniversary of that next year. Uh, yeah, gotcha. we'll get started right. in July. There you um, go. 
which happened in uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York City. And you suddenly have thousands of people in the street, not, not rioting, but celebrating, um, you know, chanting, and at the end, dancing, um, and being out there and being out at a time when it was really uh, extremely difficult to be out of the closet. I think, you know, most New Yorkers grow up uh, or, or live here and they know Stonewall, of course, but there's a lot they don't know about it. And there's a lot of myths. So I think take us through what really happened that night and what didn't happen. Look, it's before smartphones, so we don't have, before, <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of recording anything, Nobody, <laughs> can, there, were, there were like three pictures and no video of what exactly. happened. So, you know, it's really difficult. I think at the end of the day, the, the best historical accounts, uh, David Carter did a book about the Stonewall Uprising that is the most meticulously researched book about it. Kind of regarded as such. Absolutely, the, the PBS did a, a pretty amazing documentary about it. Okay. Um, and the challenge is that well, we don't know exactly what happened, right. but we know this. We know that the Stonewall Inn was like all of the gay bars in the neighborhood. It certainly wasn't the only one. Uh, it was run by the mafia and it was constantly raided by the police. So. When people ask me about the Stonewall and position it as a safe space, I sort of have to chuckle a little bit. There really was no safe space. However, you know, with the windows boarded up and the door shut, yeah. it was safe in the sense that it was safe until the police came to raid it. And um, Kathy, what was the idea that the mob would kind of pay off the police to look the other way? Or absolutely. Or that was yeah. the understanding? And the police would shake down the patrons. I mean, you know, uh, Mark Siegel, who was there as a young man, as a teenager, street kid uh, at the Stonewall that night, he talks about how the police literally, you know, were raiding the place again and people kind of shrugged and went, oh, we're being raided again, you know, the usual. But the police would go around and find the more affluent people who who looked, you know, qu more quote-unquote mainstream, mm. might be a doctor or a lawyer, have a family, be married, mm. whatever, and they would shake them down. They'd take their wallets out and they'd take their money and walk, because they Just could. kind of an understood pattern you, you of behavior. To, you want me to look at your address and tell your wife that you're at a gay bar? Now, it was the folks who were more on the margins. It was uh, butch lesbians and trans women of color, drag queens, uh, what, what then they would call themselves transvestites because the word transgender didn't really exist. Those were the folks who really had less to lose. And so they did fight back. And, you know, I think punches were thrown. I don't know about shot glasses and bricks and everything else. It was um, a hot summer night. It was a hot summer night. Things were set on fire the second night. But, but essentially what happened, uh, you know, after that first night was that people started to get other folks to come and they wrote messages in chalk and put signs up and said, come to the Stonewall, fight back. I got in the subway, I went downtown. When I got out, um, there were many, many police from the tactical police force and people were angry and people were saying, you know, this is enough. You know, that to me is what's really important. I mean, the reality is that Marsha P. Johnson mm -hmm. and Sylvia Rivera, who are icons in the community who right. pushed our community uh, on our own internal issues related to transphobia and racism, they weren't there at the very beginning. We have Marsha on audio saying that. She and, gave an and there's interview, this sort of right. legend of, oh, you know, Marsha P. Johnson threw the first shot glass. They didn't even have shot glasses. They had horrible watered down drinks and beer at right. the, the Stonewall. <laughs> um, but that takes nothing away from the decades of work they did. Right. They saved lives. They absolutely deserve to have those statues. It, with the She Bills project announced uh, about a week ago that they would be honoring Sylvia and Marcia. They totally deserve that. But what flowed from that? And a more organizational structure for the gay rights movement and the fight for gay rights? What flowed from Stonewall over these five decades? Well, I think the, the primary thing in the wake of the Stonewall riots was really the formation of the Gay Liberation Front. And then 
I think what happened as we got through the 70s, you know, just like the women's lib movement, just like the civil rights movement, you had the sexual revolution, you had the anti-war movements. It was, it was queer people taking on their piece of it. And they were parts of these other movements as well. And that, that sort of that intersectionality was something we started to see a little bit more. Um, and as we got into the 80s, you know, the, the, the devastation of AIDS. I mean, it, it's a horrific silver lining, but the devastation of AIDS is what really brought our community together. It brought together the gay men who were arguing with the lesbians, and, and you know, so the lesbians rushed in to take care of their, their gay brothers who were dying of this disease, and no one was not only not paying attention, no one cared. No the one government cared. didn't care. I mean, that was when I first became an activist in the late 80s, those were the first things I did. I was involved with GLAD, right. and I went to protest. That galvanized us in a way that helped create the more modern LGBT civil rights movement that we see today. Because once we got into the 90s, we were always making progress, we were always becoming more visible, more powerful politically, um, and more powerful just as a community, as an entity, and less abstract to the general public. You know, you can't say anymore, or you couldn't then even, you didn't know someone who was part of the LGBT community. So, you know, we hit, as we start to hit the, you know, the sort of mid-90s in the wake of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and DOMA, the community really started to organize around several major issues. Uh, I don't know, I mean, it's very complicated. I don't know that we necessarily specifically sat down around a table and said, we're going to fight for marriage. Right. We organically. Had, we had a very, well, we had a very organized anti-LGBT movement yeah. that was trying to portray us as, you know, sinful freaks and, and you know, mentally ill. Well, maybe but, that's a good segue now to talk right now, 50 years marking where things stand today. I mean, give us a kind of a temperature check, uh, 2019. Well, you know, it's really, it's interesting because we had eight years of hope, real hope and real change. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just a president who said he wanted to be with us. He actually did things. And when Obama was in office, uh, there was a lot more hope in the community. There was a lot more progress. I mean, we saw marriage equality become, you know, the law of the land. Cheers erupted outside the U.S. Supreme Court this morning. In a 5-4 decision, the justices ruled that every gay couple in America has the right to get married no matter where they live. We saw Don't Ask, Don't Tell repealed. But in the last several years, I would say not even during uh, the administration, like the election of Trump, even prior to that, during the election, uh, the campaign, um, we started to see spikes in hate crimes uh, against all kinds of communities, not just LGBT people, right. but different religions, We've women, been talking about that people on the of podcast, color, immigrants. Yeah. I mean, it's just the man has created a permissible climate of hate. That's what I keep saying, and that's what it feels like. And you know, one of the major things that the LGBT community really needs to deal with is that permissible homophobia and discrimination, particularly in the trans community. The transphobia that, that we are seeing manifest as violence, particularly against trans women of color, is horrifying. I mean, the Anti-Violence Project here in New York had a rally the other day for um, a trans woman who died in, uh, at Rikers Island. You know, she died while she was in custody. And 
And the week before that, there were three trans women killed in Dallas alone. I mean, I feel like I see it every day on my social media that a trans woman of color has been either attacked or murdered, uh, and, and we're not doing anything about it. Like, for me, for our community, it feels like that is our current day AIDS crisis. Really? It is at that level, and we're not doing what we need to be doing that about it. That is striking. It. Like, we are losing hundreds of lives, and it's really, really terrifying. And And... There are so many trans people out there who are coming out younger and younger, you know. I have a daughter who's almost 14, and her best friend is a trans boy. Right. You know, she's growing up in a world where, for a lot of these kids, they're kind of beyond labels. In some ways, they're much more fluid about things. We have so many young people who identify as non-binary now, um, you know, and all us old folks are, like, trying to figure that out and say, what was your pronoun? They, them, what's oh, that? Oh, that's you interesting. Know, it's a, yeah, it's, you know, it it's, a, it's, a, it's an education for, even within the community, okay. for the folks who are, you know, not of this generation, current uh, generation. So, you know, I, I, I do feel like things will only continue to get better, but I think it's really important that we recognize that we're, you know, we have a lot of work to do. I mean, the other piece that a lot of people don't even know, even within the community, is that you can still be fired in 25 plus states for being LGBT. We don't have federal job protections. We're trying to pass the Equality Act, but, you know, the, the guy in the White House is not going to sign that. So, you know, we have to look to local jurisdictions. We have to look to companies that protect their employees uh, to help the folks that are in these states. We're lucky here in New York. We have job protections that are based not just on sexual orientation, but gender identity as well. Cuomo signed a law banning um, uh, conversion therapy right. and also allowing surrogacy so that and, and that doesn't just affect LGBT people that affects right. anyone who's right. you know, trying to create a family that that isn't able to um, so these are all really important issues that are still on the table and it's why I think this pride because it's getting so much attention because of the anniversary because it's world pride and millions of people are coming to New York we actually will have an international platform to to educate the world about what's happening here and what's happening, you know, in other countries as well. I want to ask you about that Olympics of the Pride celebrations because sure. <laughs> you're the one that frankly told me that. But I think you should explain to some people World Pride sure. as it lands here in New York City vis-a-vis -vis what we do every year. So this was intentional in 2015. Um, just like you do for the Olympics, New York City Pride put in a bid for hosting World Pride. So World Pride is overseen by a group of international LGBT pride organizations. It's called Interpride, obviously. Um, and it just, it made so much sense to have it coincide with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall because the Stonewall riots, again, didn't just resonate here in New York or even in the U.S. There, totally. there are organizations around the world that are named Stonewall. <laughs> right. um, so it really seemed appropriate. And so when you agree to do the hosting of World Pride, you have to do certain things, just like the Olympics. There's an opening ceremony, which we'll be having on um, June 26th at Barclays Stadium in Brooklyn. A an extraordinary array of talent. Whoopi Goldberg will be hosting it, Billy Porter, Sierra, uh, Chaka Khan, Cindy Lauper, who is just an extraordinary long-term, mm -hmm. uh, long-time uh, ally to the community, uh, will kick off World Pride. Uh, we, of course, have the annual rally, which this year will be supersize to acknowledge the anniversary of the Stonewall riots on the 28th on Friday evening right in front of the Stonewall and then of course Sunday is the big day we have it will be the largest march ever um, and then in the evening there'll be a closing ceremony 
which as a New Yorker, it's kind of fun to say, in Times Square. Yeah. Because you know, we never go to Times Square unless we're seeing a show. That's true. I've never been to Times Square. Yeah. I'm 54. We, I've never been we, to Times Square on New Year's <laughs> Eve. So I have to go to Times Square for, this is like going to be a queer New Year's Eve. So yeah. there you go. Um, and, and that whole weekend, we also have Pride Island, which yeah. is a huge music festival, which this year, I mean, they really are taking it over the top for World Pride and Stonewall 50. We have Grace Jones on Saturday, and we have Madonna performing wow. on Sunday. So, the, you know, I wish I could be in five places at once myself, right. but yeah. you know, <laughs> it's going to be, there's something for everyone. It's just so much. All right. An electrifying time for New York City. Absolutely. Kathy, thank you for taking us through this history lesson. And, uh, sure. And good luck with everything. Absolutely. Thanks. I'm your host, David Ushery. We want to thank our producers, Jesse Edwards, Liam McBain, and Ben Berkowitz from the NBC New York digital team. We'll see you next time on The Debrief.